Today's scripture reading is from Luke chapter 23, 32 through 43. Two other men, both criminals, were also led out with him to be executed. When they came to the place called the skull, there they crucified him, along with the criminals, on one on his right, one on his right, the other one on his left. Jesus said, "Father, forgive them; they do not know what they are doing." And they divided up his clothes by casting lots. The people stood watching, and the rulers even sneered at him. They said, He saved others. Let him save himself, if he is the Christ of God, the Chosen One. The soldiers also came up and mocked him. They offered him wine vinegar and said, If you are the king of the Jews, save yourself. They were, there was a written notice above him which read, This is the king of Jews. One of the criminals who hung there hurled, ins- hurled insults, insults him. At him, aren't you the Christ? Aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. But the but the other criminal rebuked him. Don't you fear God? He said, since you are the other, since you are under the same sentence, we we are punished justly, for we are getting what our deeds deserve. But this man has done nothing wrong. Then he said, Jesus, remember me when you come up into your kingdom. Jesus answered him, I tell you the truth. Today you'll be with me in paradise. I was on an unfamiliar road out in the middle of nowhere and I looked up ahead of me and there was this flashing red light off in the distance. And for the life of me, I couldn't figure out what that was. I I looked in the road ahead and I, I couldn't figure out what it was flashing for. And up ahead of me there was a T and I was going to make a, a right turn. There was no one coming from the right or from the left. I had the right of way, and so I made my right turn. And that's when I saw the tracks. And that's when I saw the train. And I missed it by about that much. About a tenth of a mile down the road, my brain finally processed what had happened. And there, there was no crossing guard. There was no sign just a, a distant flashing red light for some reason. About a tenth of a mile down the road, my brain finally processed what happened, and I pulled over, and my heart was pounding, and, and I realized what had happened. There are those moments when we are so close to death, when we are so close to, to injury, when we narrowly escape, times when we are just saved by the skin of our teeth, and then we start asking the what-ifs. What if I'd been one second slower? What if the train had been one second faster? What if I had known that that flashing red light was for me? I think those kind of what-ifs can infect us spiritually. I think we start asking eternal what-if questions. What if it's not good enough? What if I screw something up and, and fall away? What if, what if I get to heaven and God changes his mind about me? We get the impression that we escape hell, that escaping hell and, and, and becomes a matter of being saved just by the, by the skin of our teeth, that we just, we just barely make it. But I wonder, when we have that idea, I, I wonder if that's really grace, if that's really what the grace of our God is like. Does God really work like that? Does he just save us by the skin of our teeth? 
The story that Kyle read for us this morning, thank you Kyle, for the uh, story of the thief on the cross, it's a beautiful story of grace. It's, it's the story of a man who is unnamed by history. All we know him by is his sin. We know what he did wrong, that he is a thief and he is being punished for his sins. He's a thief, so that defines for us who he is, what he is. We understand what he has done. We understand that he is condemned. So we know something of his spirits. And in the end, he is being punished for his crime. And he reaches out to Jesus. And he's not begging. It's not a plea. He's also not cursing like the other thief on the cross. It's simply a request. And really, it's less of a request than it is an acknowledgement. Jesus, you are king. And, and so when you enter your kingdom, please remember me. Not if you enter your kingdom, but when you enter your kingdom, please remember me. And then we have that reply. Jesus says, I tell you the truth. Today, today, you will be with me in paradise. When I read the story, I feel like we learn something about Jesus. You know, Jesus is someone who, you read through the Gospels, you read through the account of the life of Jesus, he lived his life by touching other people. He, he touched the untouchable, you know? He, he's always reaching out and touching someone. Lepers, you weren't supposed to touch lepers. Jesus touches lepers. Uh, the recently dead, you were not supposed to touch the recently dead. Jesus reached out and touched them, brought them back to life. He, he touched those that, that society would not touch. He, he touched people who were, on the out, who were outcasts, the, the unloved, the untouchable. And here he is, nailed to a cross, his arms nailed in place, and he can't reach out and touch. And so he has this request, remember me. What would he do with a request like that in, in that condition? I think the story is less about the thief than it is about Jesus. You know, we, we concentrate on the thief. But the story is less about the thief than it is about Jesus. And because the story is about Jesus, we ought to be able to see ourselves in the story. We ought to be able to see our, ourselves in the position of that thief. In fact, I think looking at the thief, we have to admit we're in the same condition that he was in. Part of, the, part of the agony of crucifixion is in understanding the humiliation of the punishment. Crucifixion was reserved for the worst of criminals, the absolute worst. And so when you think about that, what has this man stolen? We don't know, but if crucifixion is reserved for the worst of criminals, we have to ask, what did he steal? How much did he steal? Or from whom did he steal? So here he is being punished for his crime to the full extent of the law, punished with his own death. And yet it was in that condition that he finds hope. It's in that condition that he finds salvation. I've never been able to read that story that Kyle read for us without thinking about Paul's words in Galatians chapter 2. At Galatians 2, verses 17 through 21, you find it on page 973. Because as Paul explains our spiritual condition to us, what he shows us in Galatians 2 is that we are in the very same condition as this thief on the cross. We have been crucified with Christ. He begins there, and we're going to begin in verse 17. 
Verse 17, Paul says, But if in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, we, we ought to stop there for a minute, because that just sounds complicated. In our endeavor to be justified in Christ, what, what exactly does that mean? Well, that, this idea of being justified, it, the handy, the quick and dirty little definition of justified is justified means being made just as if I'd never sinned, right? You can remember that? Justified is, is about becoming pure when, when the reality is you have been impure. It's about being whole when the reality is you have been broken. Now, there were two ways that uh, they believed that you could be justified. One it was through Jesus, okay? We'll just leave that there for a moment. But the other way that people tried to be justified was by keeping the law, by doing everything perfectly, by keeping the law as perfectly as they could, by following every little rule, every, every little detail of the law. And guess what? You can't do it. And so in the end, after you had failed, instead of being justified, you were found to be a sinner. You were found to still be condemned. What happens when a Christian who is being justified not by their good works, not by being able to be perfect, but a Christian who is justified by Christ, what happens when that person still sins? <laughs> what happens when that person still fails to be perfect? What happens to, to us, in other words? So, but if, in our endeavor to be justified in Christ, if we too were found to be sinners, well, is Christ then a servant of sin? Certainly not. For if I rebuild what I tore down, I, I prove myself to be a transgressor. For through the law, I died to the law. The law couldn't bring life. So through the law, I died to the law so that I might live to God. I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. You see, the spiritual reality that Paul writes of here, the spiritual reality that we have was lived out in torturous physicality by this thief on the cross. Physically, well, physically it's easy to recognize the finality of crucifixion. Uh, we don't even come close to grasping that spiritually. Crucified with Christ. Are we really crucified with Christ? Well, well, maybe today I am, but maybe tomorrow I'm not. You know, tomorrow I might go back and do those other things, but today I'll, I'll be crucified with Christ. But doing the, the right things every now and then to try to earn our salvation. You know, in one breath we, we praise God, and another breath we, we curse our fellow man. We, we understand our hypocrisy. You know, at least the thief on the cross, he was actually going to die to his bad habits. He was actually going to die to his sin. He was never going to be able to steal again. So we, we know our desire for salvation, but we also understand our nature. This salvation, though, doesn't come from our ability to be perfect. It comes from Jesus' gift given on the cross. We know it's not a matter of us trying, to be, trying hard enough to be saved and, and doing the right things and earning our salvation. Rather, it's a matter of relying completely on Jesus, relying on, on who he is. And the reality is, like the thief, we have nothing but a, a small bit of faith. The thief, his faith was completely in, in understanding that Jesus might make it through this. Jesus would make it through this. Our sin has condemned us. But we have been crucified with Christ. And while we have been counted dead to sin, we are alive in Christ. 
Years ago, I, I read something that just kind of stuck with me, and I posted this on, on Facebook the other day. It, uh, it was about what it means to be crucified. And it said there are three things, three characteristics of a person who's crucified. And it said, first of all, the man who is crucified is facing only one direction. Crosses do not pivot. They don't swivel. The person who has been crucified is facing only one direction. So he's not looking back. He's not looking back to his old way of life. There, there's nothing in this world that's left for him. He's no longer a part of that. Secondly, the person who is crucified, he's not going back. There, there's no returning to that former way of life. And there were people who came to Jesus and said, I will follow you, but let me go back. Let me go back and say goodbye. Let me first go back and bury my father. Let me go back and do this. Let me go back and do that. But the person who's crucified is not going back. And then the man who is crucified is totally in God's hands. The person who is crucified is totally in God's hands. He has no goals of his own. He has no ambitions of his own. He has no dreams of his own. His identity is in that cross and in being crucified with Christ. And I hope we see the same thing with us. And I hope we see that another thing that we have in common with this thief is that we are looking to the same Lord. Yeah, some people might look at the thief's request as an act of desperation. He was desperate. Uh, and so what did he have to lose? So, so why not give Jesus a chance? And I guess it's possible that the thief could have been desperate like that. But what about the other thief? You know, this thief, this one thief, he, he asked Jesus to remember him. But the other thief was calling down curses and insults. And could those insults, could those curses have been an act of desperation? You know, maybe he thought, this Jesus is a blasphemer. And if I... If I curse him, maybe God will notice. Maybe God will notice that I'm cursing the blasphemer and, and God will save us or save me. We might be accused at times of doing some very desperate things. We have, we have prayers of, of desperation sometimes. Lord, I told you I wouldn't do this again. But, but you know me, Lord, and, and you know me, and you know I can't help myself, and and you know I'm weak, so you've got to do something, God. You've got to take care of this for me. We get like that when we get desperate. We know we're unprepared. We know we're not going to make it on our own. So we cry out for God to do something miraculous, something to save us. There's a lot of great things that we should do as Christians. There's a lot of wonderful things that if you're a Christian, you, you should do. But none of them should ever be seen as acts of desperation. You don't do anything out of desperation our baptism baptism is a wonderful thing you, you ought to do that it's not an act of desperation obedience it's not an act of desperation the the sacrifices we make the offerings we make none of these things are are acts of desperation because no no acts of desperation no, no last chances are going to save us none of those things can can save us our salvation comes through the act of jesus on the cross that is it Paul put it this way there in verse 20. He said, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. You see, for Paul, it wasn't a matter of being justified by the law. And for the thief on the cross, it wasn't a matter of what he could do. His arms were tied. His hands were tied. His arms were nailed. There was nothing he could do for himself. And it's no different for us. 
We are 100% dependent upon the love of Christ and the sacrifice of him on the cross. It's a matter of faith. It's a matter of believing that what he did was enough to save even me. And so because we look to the same Lord as the thief on the cross, we have the promise that we will receive the same reward. You know, it still amazes me when I read his simple request. He just says, remember me. That's all he asks. Remember me when you enter your kingdom. Remember me. Kind of request you might make to a friend. You know, you run into a friend of yours who's buying their lotto ticket, you know, and the the, the mega millions is really going to pay off really good that week. And so they're buying their lottery ticket, and you say, hey, if you win, if you win, you remember me. You know, you, you need to share a little bit of that with me. Remember me. Might be a kind of request that we make of a friend when we're going through a difficult time. Remember me in your prayers. But what he gains, it's not remembrance. It's not just a memorial. What he gains is life, and it's it's immediate and it's real. Jesus says to him, "Today I tell you, you will be with me in paradise." And I gotta say, there are a lot of Christians who have seriously struggled with this story. There are a lot of Christians who have seriously struggled with this story, and and they try to explain it. How could this guy be saved? How does this work? How did this guy get saved? There's no repentance in this story. The guy doesn't repent of of being a thief. He can't get baptized up there on that cross. How how is he saved if he's not going to get baptized? There are actually Christians who try to explain this story away. There are some who will tell you that the word that Jesus uses there for paradise simply means the afterlife, not a reward or a punishment. It just simply means the afterlife. There are some people who believe that what Jesus is actually saying to this thief on the cross is, today I will see you in hell. Seriously, people do that. Does that sound like Jesus? Does that sound like something Jesus would say? Does that sound like like his character? No. Lay all those questions aside, though. Don't look at the thief. Look at Jesus. Look at the one in the middle. What is this? This is Jesus being Lord. This is Jesus being Savior. What is this? This is grace. This is pure and simple grace. And it's what saves us. The problem is we look at the thief. We see the thief, and we we look at what he's done, and we put our attention on the thief, and we should be putting our attention on Jesus. You make the same mistake when you put your attention on what you've done. You make the same mistake when you put your attention on the mistakes that you have made or or the mistakes that someone else has made rather than putting the attention on Jesus. We see our we see our own mistakes, we see our own sins, we see our own failures, and we get this idea, I have to I have to fix this or Jesus isn't going to accept me. If I don't fix this, I can't go to church. I can't show up in that place knowing what I've done, those people knowing what I've done. I can't be there until I fix this. But when we try to fix this, not only do we fail, but we lose the one thing that can fix it for us. We lose the one person that can fix it for us. Look at what Paul says in verse 21 here. Galatians chapter 2, verse 21 He says, I do not nullify the grace of God. 
For if righteousness were through the law, then Christ died for no purpose. In other words, if I could be made righteous by being good enough, if I could be perfect, if I could be sinless, then Christ died for nothing. Then his death was worthless. To add anything to our salvation, any good work, any ability to be good, to be good enough, not only does that insult our Father, who has already told us that we've fallen, <laughs> we've sinned and fallen short, but it condemns Jesus to a meaningless death. It's a tough lesson. Paul had to be taught that lesson. Paul had to learn that lesson the hard way. Paul tells us that the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh. He doesn't tell us what the thorn was. We don't know what kind of problem this was, but Paul says that, that God, the Lord gave him a thorn in the flesh. And the point of the thorn, <laughs> there's a little pun there, stay with me. The point of the thorn was to cause Paul to rely on God's grace all the more. You remember what, what the Lord told Paul? When Paul asked him three times, I asked him to remove this from me. And the Lord said, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient for you. You know, if, if grace was sufficient for the Apostle Paul, then grace was sufficient for that thief on the cross. And if grace was sufficient for the thief on the cross, then grace is sufficient for us. And if grace was sufficient for that thief on the cross who is in paradise today with Jesus, then it's sufficient for us. Paradise is promised to those who come to Christ. There was a preacher back in the 1800s named Charles Spurgeon. And there's a story that Spurgeon tells of how he was reading this passage about the, the thorn in the flesh. And my grace is sufficient for you. And he began thinking about that statement, and he, he kind of let his mind wander. My, my grace is sufficient for you. So he, he got to thinking about, uh, about what that meant. And he imagined, he imagined a fish in the river. And uh, the fish is swimming along in the river, and the fish got thirsty. And so the, the fish, fish was, I don't know if fish really get thirsty or not, but in this case, the, the fish was thirsty. And the fish got thirsty, and so he started drinking the water in the river. And the fish got worried that maybe he would be so thirsty that he would be in such great need that he may actually drink the river dry. And God spoke to the fish and said, Do not worry. My river is sufficient for you. And Spurgeon kind of let his mind wander a little bit more, and, and he imagined a mouse. In, um, imagine a mouse. You like mice. Mary... Marianne likes mice. Anyway, he imagined a mouse in, uh, in the grain storage in Egypt. You remember the story in, in Genesis that Egypt went through seven years of plenty and then seven years of famine, and so they stored up all the grain so that they could feed everybody for those seven years of famine. In fact, they had so much that they shared it with others and sold grain to other people and, and became very, very wealthy through all of that. Joseph had taken care of all of that for them. And so there's this mouse in the grain bins in Egypt. And the mouse is hungry, and so he starts eating the grain. But then he got worried. What if I'm so hungry that I eat all the grain? And Joseph said to the mouse, cheer up. My grain is sufficient for thee. 
And Spurgeon said for the first time, he began to understand the all-sufficient grace of God. Because the fact is, you're not saved by the skin of your teeth. You don't barely make it into heaven. We are saved by an incredible gift given that gives immeasurably more than all that we could ask or imagine. I guess the bad news is when we get to heaven, there's going to be thieves there. <laughs> Maybe that's why it's got gates. <laughs> there are already, they're already thieves in heaven waiting for us. I don't know what that does for your faith. I don't know how you handle that. Thieves in heaven. But what it ought to cause us to do is ask, where do we put our trust? What do we trust our where do we put the trust of our salvation? Do we put the trust of our salvation in what we have done? Uh, have we acted in obedience? I hope we have. I hope we've acted in obedience. I hope you've done those things. I hope you've repented. I hope you've confessed the name of Jesus Christ. If you've called on him as your Lord and Savior, I hope you've baptized. Those are wonderful things. And and the Bible tells us that God Himself rejoices in heaven because we've done those things. But place your trust, place your confidence in the one hanging on the cross in the middle, the one hanging on the cross with you. Because your sin has condemned you, but his gift has brought you everlasting life. That's why we go to him. That's why we go to him alone. That's why we come to this table and remember what he's done for us. Let's pray, and then we're going to come to